Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. These bootlegs, I mean, you listen to them, and it's some guy who smuggled a, a tape recorder in his nuts, you know, into the <laughs> place. And then he's sitting there during the show, and you're overhearing him argue with his girlfriend like halfway through no quarter or something <laughs> like that. And you're like, this is amazing. Not only did it preserve the show, but it preserved this argument between some couple in Buffalo in 1973, like the documentary aspect of it. Claire, I'm a big rock and roll guy. I don't know if I've made that clear to you. And today we have an amazing, sensational band that we're going to be talking about, Led Zeppelin, specifically Led Zeppelin. You could call them live tapes. I like to call them bootlegs because it's like pretty cool, you know, Mm -hmm. and I like to feel like I'm a pretty cool guy, even when I'm not, you know. Right. I get that. (laughs) I'm just pretty stoked. And our guest is, of course, Peter Michael Dowd. He is the director of Mr. Jimmy. And he's more than the director. He's the editor. He's the everything of a documentary, Mr. Jimmy, that shows a guy in Japan who had a day job, but then at night would go perform as Jimmy Page. And it's awesome. I mean, awesome. And so hearing Peter talk about Led Zeppelin in the live tapes, I mean... It's pretty cool because the guy knows what he's talking about. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I knew you were into football, but I didn't know you were as into music. So that's interesting, Jake. Who is your all-time favorite band? All right. So all-time favorite band, I don't know if I have one, but I have musicians. I'm a big, like, Tom Petty guy. I'm a big Johnny Mm. Cash guy. I'm a big Led Zeppelin guy. That's why I'm so excited about this movie, Mr. Jimmy, because – Led Zeppelin approved the music for this movie, Claire, and they don't do that for anyone. I mean, it's a huge deal. And Peter spent eight years making this movie. This wasn't like some little side project for him. He dove in. So I can't wait to see this movie bring those eight years to life and just dive into the world of Zeppelin. Well, I mean, as a director, Peter's such an interesting guy. Sometimes you have a director that's only, you know, nonfiction or sometimes only fiction. He dabbles back and forth between scripted and unscripted. And this obviously is unscripted. And he has such like a interesting perspective on music himself that you can see how that influences should influence his filmmaking, you know? And being such a diehard Zeppelin fan himself is. I got to feel like there's this connection between him and the hero character in his movie. But we're going to talk about his movie more in a mini-sode, mm-hmm. which is going to drop on Monday. Right now, we are here to talk to Peter about Led Zeppelin live bootleg shows, and let's get it on. Buckle up, everybody. 
Peter, let me ask you this. Is there a definitive best Led Zeppelin live performance? Oof. I mean, things are going to get heated in the comments section. <laughs> no, because uh, it's like varieties of wine, varieties of you name it. There's a time, there's a season, there's a whatever. I mean, you might wake up one morning feeling like I'm feeling like a bit of Whiskey Go-Go 69, whereas uh, maybe an autumn night might call for a little Copenhagen 79. You know, just to everything, there's, there's a season. To every season, there's a different Led Zeppelin bootleg or Led Zeppelin live era. I think, for me, that's why it was worth following this guy you know, for, for years and years, because he was paying homage to the live legacy of Led Zeppelin, which is so varied and was never the same. And a live performance from 73 is totally different experience than one from 1977. Mm -hmm. And as Akio even says in the film, in incredible detail, March and April of 73 is quite different than May of 73. I mean, they really were like completely unprecedented, a rock band playing stadiums, but acting as if it was a jazz stage, like they're playing the Village Vanguard, but there just happened to be 70,000 people there. I mean, they would do it different every night and different during the song, during the moment, pushing each other, the drummer pushing the guitarist, the guitarist pushing the drummer, plant and page improvising into each other, over each other. So uh, is there a definitive best performance? Maybe, eh, I guess you could, you could always come back to the Holy Grail touchstone of Madison Square Garden 1973 because it was captured on film. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing that inspired fandoms over the, across the world from Tokamachi, Japan to Boston, Massachusetts to want to look like Jimmy Page and move like Jimmy Page and climb a mountain in a foggy night whatever, like they do in the fantasy sequence of the movie, you know, that seared it that night into our brain because it was the concert that was filmed because it was the movie that they released. But otherwise, depends on your vibe. Yep. Depends on your vibe. I love that. And Fanatics, if you haven't guessed, we're here with Peter Michael Dowd talking about Led Zeppelin live. And Peter, you just did a great job of breaking down what these live performances are. But I'm curious, what led you to them? My cherry popped with Led Zeppelin. Uh, I was a freshman in high school. I was getting a ride with a senior, and he was playing music at the time, early 90s hard rock, which was just a sad regurgitation of <laughs> the original, missing all the soul and the blues and the funkiness that gave the stuff in the 70s its swagger that made Zeppelin Zeppelin, that made the Stones the Stones. And then finally, one day, thank the Lord, uh, he grabbed this white cassette tape, put it in the deck, and I heard the riff to Whole Lot of Love. And just, it just some synapse in my brain exploded all over the place. And I've never been more conscious of a piece of music and the construction of the music and what was going on. And I was just instantly like, what is this fucking riff? This is like Beethoven with a fucking Les Paul. What is this? Is, this riff is amazing. And then as soon as I'm starting to get into the riff, the bridge of the song comes along and they take the this riff that any if any other band had ever come up with this riff, they would have held on to it for dear life. It would have been Iron Butterfly in a Gata de Vida. They would have played that riff for 17 years, never let it go. And Led Zeppelin takes this riff, picks it up on a ball, and throws it away, goes into a bridge. They bring in a tablet player. Robert Plant's having an orgasm on the mic. Jimmy Page busts out a fucking theremin. 
and you're like, what the fuck is this experimental music? They took this riff, they threw it away. Now they're doing avant-garde shit. And then next thing you know, John Bonham comes back in with a drum. Jimmy Page has this savage solo. And then back to the riff, like the ultimate climax. And I was like, holy fucking shit, what was that? I need a cigarette. I don't even smoke. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just really blew my mind. And I, at that point, was obsessed. And I think... In some ways, the great thing about pre whatever it is, internet music, online streaming, blah, 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 you had to save up to buy the record. You had to go one record at a time. And not being rich was actually an advantage because you had to save up to fucking get the 12 bucks to, am I going to buy House of the Holy or am I going to buy Zeppelin too? I don't know. They got 12 bucks. I got to make a choice. One by one, building the record collection, diving into that. And then finally, getting the long way about your question getting the live album, the song remains the same. And being like, what the fuck is this? Dazed and Confused was eight minutes on the record. I thought that was pretty long. This is fucking 26 minutes. What is going on here? And then you get into it and you're like, this is fucking amazing. What the fuck? And then you could play air guitar in your bedroom for two hours at a, at a clip. It was like the record and then opening 10 other doors, taking it beyond into other, 10 other rooms in the house that you never knew existed. And after I had gone through all the studio albums and the box sets and the reissues and then this and that, you're just like an addict. You're hungry for more. And you're like, well, if this live album is one night in 73, like what else is going on? And then back in the day, I grew up in Boston, Hampton Beach. So semi-trashy uh, beachfront area. And in the fine tradition, they would have all your head shops and then bootleg shops and sometimes mixed so it'd be like, uh, do you want to look at this bong or do you want to look at like Cleveland 77? So you would go and like ask. It's also, again, pre-internet, pre-streaming, pre-downloading everything all at once. It felt so illicit to go into the head shop and, hey, man, could I get a listen to that Cleveland 77 tape? <laughs> you know, and like in Harvard Square, there was this bootleg shop and they had a bunch of them. And again... You know, they were like a bootleg. It was like 40 bucks or 50 bucks. And I didn't have much money. My mom like drove a taxi. I, I didn't come from a lot of money. So like I would go in there and A, B, I would, I could only afford one every three months or something. So I'd say, all right, can I listen to that Cleveland 77 again? And they'd be like, uh, you again? They're like, okay, kid. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I don't know. It's 40 bucks. Hold on, hold on. Can I listen to Berkeley 71? And they're like, okay, can you make a choice? Like, hold on, no, no, hold on. Okay, give me that New Orleans 73 again. Give me that New Orleans 73. And then you're just listening. And after like three months, I made a plan with my buddy. All right, I'll buy New Orleans 73. You buy Cleveland 77. We'll trade tapes. <laughs> and that was it. And it was just the cool thing about it was maybe particularly – at that point, hard rock had gotten so formulaic and corporate that discovering this live context where rock and roll became experimental again and wild and, and the, the studio albums, you had explored them, but there was this whole other universe. I was just hooked and just slowly started building my bootleg collection one by one by one. That's amazing. <laughs> it's awesome. And obviously you tried to develop quite the collection of a band that performed these live concerts like 20 years before, did you ever go see Jimmy Page live or yes. Robert Plant? When did that happen? Okay, so I'm born in 76. I guess I was just a tick too young to appreciate him when he toured in 1988. That would have been 12. I hadn't discovered them. So they next came around when Jimmy Page and Robert Plant reunited in 1995. So by this point, I was deep into my addiction. 
I remember when they announced that tour, I called my my best friend Jack up. I was like, we have to fucking be first in line. We have to like get these tickets. So he's like, tickets go on sale at 10 a.m. What time do you want to pick me up? I was like, I'm picking you up at 2 a.m. We're going <laughs> to go down to Tower Records at Newberry Street. And uh, we were there probably like five hours before anyone else showed up. We got interviewed on WBCN Boston because we were officially the biggest Zeppelin maniacs in Boston. The hilarious thing is all our good intentions were fucking waste because what they did back in those days was like the first hundred people who lined up to discourage people from being lunatics like us. They just gave them out like random numbers, like a lottery. So you could be first in line or 85th in line, but it didn't fucking matter. And I was like, fuck these people. I've been here for six hours. I deserve a better seat than this guy. Didn't matter. Anyway, it comes time for the show at Boston Garden. I mean, I, I'm out of my head and I the lights go down and I'm like, it's happening, like it's happening. And you just saw this ember, just the ember of Jimmy Page's cigarette on stage. I'm like, it's Page, it's Page, it's Jimmy Page. I see the cigarette. And I, I like, I mean, true lunacy. I mean, true lunacy. I mean, that show at Boston Garden was absolutely insane. Boston, I think, has a particularly frenetic atmosphere for rock and roll. It was awesome. And what's funny is all these years later, meeting Akio, he got to see a tour that never came to the United States. He saw Coverdale Page when Jimmy Page toured with David Coverdale, and they only played Japan. And he had the same story. He goes, I remember I was, he got much better seats than me. He's like, I was like second row. And I could smell the cigarette. I could smell the cigarette of Jimmy Page. And he's like, I was like trying to like suck it into my lungs. And I was like, wow, we both have uh, had intense emotional experiences around Jimmy Page's cigarette. <laughs> and then I saw them, uh, I think I saw them three times on that tour in 95. Then I saw Page Plant at least two or three times on the 98 tour, which was even more insane because Jimmy Page's chops were off the charts in, in 98 and the live version of no quarter was completely insane. The babe, I'm going to leave you solo was insane. How many more times was insane. So I'm holding out hope for one, I don't know, maybe one more tour. Uh, let's go. I'm, I'm ready. I'll be there wherever it is in the world, but those are peak experiences for me. Absolutely. You talk a lot about the commitment and being first in line outside tower records is like the massive commitment, especially back <laughs> in the nineties, you know, yeah. and with the digital age, everything is much easier. Consumption of music, seeing a show, everything. So do you think that back before the digital age that we're in now, the connectivity between the band members and I don't know, the excitement and the energy was different in a way. Do you think that the band was more fearless because we haven't entered the age mm. of like indefinite records of every mm -hmm. single thing? You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know exactly yeah. how to phrase that, but I think you get where I'm going. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, life sucks now. <laughs> well, I mean, you said it, Peter. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, if you're famous and you go to the supermarket, you step out of your car, hey, how's, how's it going? How are you feeling? Well, maybe somebody would do that 15 years ago, but they wouldn't have a fucking camera in your face. Yeah. That's annoying. And then I, I do think there was something magical about it not being recorded and about things that if you weren't there, well, you didn't experience it. And that's part of the magic in some way. I was there. I did see it, man. And in my mind, it was like this. I almost don't want a fucking recording. I want to remember it the way I felt it in that moment and remembered it in that moment and the wafting 
fucking marijuana in the Boston Garden in that moment. Well, and there's something about listening to the audio only, you know, where mm. your mind can paint the rest of the experience out. And that's really like what these live like bootleg recordings do is mm-hmm. you can shut your eyes and paint your own picture based on what you're hearing. And that's really special and unique. We don't really have that anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, going back to what you were just saying, if I'm a performer and I think that's just kind of what's great about the theater. Like you go for it. And now with if everyone's got a camera and or whatever, well, if you hit a bum note, like, oh, is that going to go viral? I mean, oh, God. And I also do think just the these bootlegs, I mean, you listen to them and it's some guy who smuggled a, a tape recorder in his nuts, you know, into the <laughs> place. And then he's sitting there during the show and you're overhearing him argue with his girlfriend like halfway through no quarter or something <laughs> like that. And you're like, this is amazing. Not only did it preserve the show, but it preserved this argument between some couple in Buffalo in 1973, like the documentary aspect of it, or just the stories of these crazy bootleggers who I'm sure at the time the band hated. And I do understand people ripping you off is not cool. But at the same time, in some ways, they wound up preserving their live legacy. So thank God. But somebody like this famous bootlegger, Mike Millard, I mean, the guy was such a devious psychopath and savant. He would like go in in a, like a fake wheelchair and like attach microphones to the chair. And it was like genius. Like, how am I going to get a good seat? Well, I'll pretend to be handicapped. No disrespect to handicapped people, but like he'd pretend to be handicapped. He would rig the thing with high quality microphones. He was like the, the ghetto version of the Rolling Stones mobile studio in a fucking wheelchair. It's great. And thank God for people like that. Cause now, mm-hmm. man, it's, this stuff is priceless. These bands at their peak to get a couple recordings out of the L.A. forum of Led Zeppelin at their peak. I mean, wow, thank God that guy smuggled in that microphone in his nutsack. I mean, it's, it's great stuff. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So aside from the uh, bong bootleg shop, which... (laughs) I can just see right in my mind. Did you ever buy any of audio live recordings? Like I went to NYU in the 90s. And so like I remember like walking down the street and like people would have their like basically a sheet out with all the bootleg movies and tapes. And then, you know, cops would be coming close and they'd like pick it up like a knapsack, like Santa's toy sack and walk away. I bought bootlegs like that. Did you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I lived in New York like 2001 to 2008. Yeah, I remember. I I don't know why. Why would I buy this movie? Maybe because it was only five bucks. It was the Al Pacino movie with Matthew McConaughey, two for the money. Two for the money. I bought that illegally too. Yes, yes. Why? I don't know why, but we did. Okay, so I bought it and I remember I'm watching this going, this is a fucking guy with a camcorder on his lap and then like you're hearing him eat popcorn halfway during the recording. Oh yeah, somebody stands up and leaves, like walks (laughs) right in front of the screen. (laughs) Those are the charms of bootleg culture and it's like, uh, (laughs) I, I got a whole other story about me getting bootlegged that I can tell you in a second. 
So you don't love it as the filmmaker. But sitting there watching it is this hilarious dual documentary of a shitty version of a film or whatever. And this guy eating his popcorn or arguing with his girlfriend or whatever. And you're like, why all of a sudden is the camera half covered by this guy's jacket, you know, during the thing? Yeah, that is funny thinking back to that. Uh, I love it. Peter, let me ask you. What is your collection like? Like how many albums, how many of these lives do you have? Are you a big like merch guy, shirt guy? You got a big Zeppelin tattoo on your chest. <laughs> what do you carry with you? Yeah, no tats. I mean, obviously I have all the studio recordings, all the official live recordings. And then, I mean, I don't know. I probably bought physical bootlegs. Uh, I don't know. Probably paid for like maybe 50 of them over the years because they were expensive. And then during the age of digital, I mean, what can I say? With one click, you're able to download an entire tour. So, of course, by this point, I've assembled, I think, basically every live show that Zeppelin performed in one form or another, plus the Page and Plant uh, reunion tours. I have every one of those live shows. I'm probably less on the upkeep as I used to be, but if I, you know, if somebody's like, "Oh, this is a really nice upgrade of this show," I absolutely will pick it up. To me, it's worth it because, like I said, the shows are different, mm-hmm. and you, you might be in the mood for. I have a particular thing for Copenhagen '79. I don't know why. I love that. Love that show. It's wildly underrated. Maybe because it's Zeppelin when they were super big and had this incredibly. Uh, deep body of work, but they were playing a tiny theater. So you kind of get the best of both worlds, like an amazingly deep set list in an intimate uh, environment, not like some football field or something. Yeah. So my collection's pretty deep, but uh, I don't, I'm not big on a t-shirt guy and I'm not a tattoo guy and I'm not, I'm not gonna be wearing a Zeppelin bandana. I don't know why I'm not trying to be too cheesy about it, but I just fucking love the music. I, I love to have all the recordings. Mm-hmm. You brought up a really good point earlier when you were like, this was the preservation of this certain era of live shows. What's happening now? Where does that art form of bootlegging and like recording these very organic moments, what's the trajectory for that? Because it is like its own little art form. I don't know. Sadly, I guess sadly is where now it's just like every other fucking guy on YouTube or every other fucking guy on Instagram with 8,000 angles of whatever show played last night. Yeah, it's not special. It's not a smuggler's thing. It's not some great achievement that, hey, you managed to like sneak in a camera and get this thing. Everybody does it. And the whole thing of back in the day, oh man, you wanted to discover a band. You had to go to the record store and choose what album you wanted to get. And it was a sort of natural organic progression versus now you just go on whatever it is, Spotify, and it's like, yeah, here's all their songs. And Okay. I don't know. I hate to be an old guy complaining about the kids these days, but it does seem just like the organic discovery of a thing and the time you spend with an album as a body of work seems like it's sort of been wiped out by all this streaming stuff. Well, we've talked about that in other episodes where we've discussed music is the the art of the album is not prevalent. You know, Mm. people release singles now. It's like a single here, a single there. And you don't have that like experience the ebb and the flow of like the 12 or 15 songs. Mm, mm, mm. And so I particularly miss that because I I just love that whole like putting yourself in that audio world for an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. Now it's just a click away, a download away. And um, yeah, there's something about, I don't know, progressing with a band. 
because bands don't release all their albums at once. You know, Led Zeppelin was a 10-year span of recording and releasing. And there was something nice about having to take a journey with them an album at a time. Mm-hmm. And now that now that's gone. <laughs> but it sounds like You've had a lot of connection with friends, specifically in the past, talking about trading bootlegs. You each buy it, you trade it, going to these uh, concerts with your buddies. Mm. Is this something you share with, you know, your partner, your family, <laughs> or is this really like you got buddies and, and these are your Zeppelin guys? Yeah, no, I've definitely had exes say like, uh, what the fuck are you doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're exes. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember for one, I was like, because... Uh, when you have that many bootlegs, you wind up having like 132 versions of Cashmere live. And I'd be like, all right, quiz me, put one on, and I'll tell you what year it was from. <laughs> and uh, then they were like, I think you're so disturbed because you're getting these all right. Like, I, <laughs> so I don't think I've dated anyone who's a true Zep head, and maybe that's okay. It's good to have separate spaces or whatever like that. I mean, um, you can only spend so much time together. But my best friend at the time we, in high school and growing up, we were both into Zeppelin at the same level. And I think we both completely lost our shit at that concert at Boston Garden. And we were both on the same page. It wasn't like I said, I'll pick you up at 2 a.m. And he was like, you're a maniac. He was like, all right, do you think it's too, too late? Is that soon enough? Yeah. Yeah. One <laughs> <laughs> thirty? Can yeah. we do this? Yeah. <laughs> Some fun about that. I don't know. Would you recommend, and I think the answer is going to be yes, but would you recommend Copenhagen as the entry point for someone like, and actually, let me ask you this, Peter, a deeper question about Copenhagen. If you would recommend it as an entry point, (laughs) would you want to sit there with me and explain as everything's going? Because I tend to do that myself. So I'm curious, would you Uh, rather me go off and listen or would you rather be there with me and kind of like explain how exciting each moment is? Well, Claire, that's quite the proposition. I mean, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, before we get into discussing our evening together, I think that just like with music, you've got to learn the basics and the rules before you can break them. So you have to get your fundamentals down. So you have to get your song remains the same on. You have to get that one down pat. You have to get how the West was won down pat you have to get their dvd live chronology down pat to get the basics then we can go deeper then you can get okay. into a copenhagen 79 so i'm just not ready yet i need some like <laughs> layer the shallow end you gotta you gotta <laughs> learn to swim then you could die i gotta use the the what do they call that thing the baja step where it's into the pool oh my yeah. oh my <laughs> yeah i think Bootleg, you have to develop what they call bootleg ears, because I think if your first introduction to Led Zeppelin Live is Copenhagen 79, you're actually not doing full justice to the the band's musicality and how it sounded, because your first dosage should be professionally recorded, professionally mixed, supervised by Jimmy Page. MSG 73, because that's what the band sounded like. Once you know what they, they sounded like, then you understand that Copenhagen 1979 is just a reference pointing towards that and all the little flaws in the fucking recording when the guy ruffles his pants and the fucking recorder falls down the, his pant leg and you, you just sound like you're in a bass trap. <laughs> like you understand like that's not what the band sounded like on that night. Right. I think that would be doing a little bit of a disservice to the band or a lot of a disservice. But then... Maybe in Earl's Court, or maybe you just take a natural progression 
with the band and just kind of go sort of year by year. You know, it's like if I were doing a wine tour, you have a natural progression of depth. Not like I'm Johnny Sommelier or anything like that. But I think you, you to see the evolution is really cool. And listening back now, even to the studio recordings, is really cool to do in that progression. Because you're like, mm-hmm. wow, fuck, Jimmy Page's guitar tone from 72, 73 to Presence, 76. You're like, wow, it got so fucking rough and edgy so fast. And the sound from 73 to 75, it, wow, it's just like got so funky and dirty real fast. That's cool. And to take the chronological journey with it, I think you pick up a little more of the vibe of like, oh yeah, they were doing this. And then they were like, well, how about a little of this? And then they took it a little step further and then they got into this. And so I think, uh, take your time. We need to ease you in, okay. warm you up and, and chronologically <laughs> take the journey. Copenhagen 79, that's going and we're talking deep. That's some deep. Shit. Yeah, that's deep. That's deep. <laughs> I'm ready. I, I think you have to like train your ears also. Like you mentioned like getting your live. Yeah, I don't know what you said. Live bootleg ears. Bootleg yeah, ears. Yeah. yeah. I think that also, you know, that's what attracts people to different bands to begin with is like the quality of the sound, the mixture of the instruments. Mm. And like you even mentioned like the throwing from one musician to the other improvisation. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been a band as great I mean, I'm sure there's some Miles Davis fans out there who might have a thing to say or something like that. But for me, in the rock and roll context, absolutely not. Yeah. Because I think individually, four master musicians together, the chemistry between them just elevated it. And what's nice is um, each was propelling the other. John Bonham might push Jimmy Page in a different direction. Page might push Bonham in a direction. Plant and Page improvising together pushing each other and uh, never the same every night. And again, the music started as very blues centric and blues foundation. And then just by the time you're getting to Kashmir and Achilles last stand, (laughs) the kind of statement that Achilles last stand makes to open a fucking record is insane. Mm -hmm. It's such a symphonic construction. It's so beyond a blues number. I just think there's nobody else out there who was consistently tour by tour, month by month, just trying to do something different and trying to push themselves musically and not repeat. I love ACDC. There's a certain certain thing that they do perfectly. I mean, they're amazing at it, but it's not. It's certainly not an evolution, but they're still absolutely geniuses at it. Led Zeppelin is an evolving form. And um Obviously, he gets sometimes gets short shrift. John Paul Jones, masterful bass player and the keys. That rhythm section, I mean, hard to ever consider topping that in rock and roll. That's amazing. Before we wrap this up, Peter, I like to kind of get into your psyche a little bit. Oh, boy. Why this, like, internally does this touch off, like, sense memory-wise, oh emotionally, <laughs> like... <laughs> Is it just the nostalgia of living through this amazing era? Is it something that you connected with, like with elders when you were young and now you want to pass it on? What is it about Led's Up Online? Elders. Elders, no. Elders, um, you know, elder, those elders. No elders were involved. Um, <laughs> I think that part of the story or whatever is just that I think what's so cool and undeniable about music is whatever fucking language you speak and wherever you're from, 
a groove is going to make you tap your foot. It's going to make you tap your foot. It's going to make you bob your head, whether you're from Tokamachi, Japan or Boston, Massachusetts. And I think that's the power of great music. It's the universality of great music. So it was something handed down from the elders. I I don't know. <laughs> See, there were elders involved. <laughs> In this movie, it's packed with the amazing compositions of Led Zeppelin, but it's also surrounded by the previous generation of Otis Rush, John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Muddy Waters, yeah. um, The Miracles, Jimmy Reed. So if, in terms of the legacy, it's hearkening back to that legacy of a groove. Yeah, so in me, I just responded to the music profoundly. And I think the thing that I love about Akio is that he does take me back to that feeling of being 15 and being at school all day Jesuit school in Boston and just thinking, man, I can't wait to get back to my room tonight and put that record on. And I'm going to play air guitar to the live version of No Quarter. And I'm going to be as happy as I've ever been in my life. That's all I need. I don't need to be rich. Just need this record, my room. I'm happy. And, and those, I think, were some of the happiest days of my teenage years. The s- simple pleasure of that and that the wild stimulation I got from those records. The same thing that this guy from Tokamachi, Japan, which is the most remote (laughs) place in the world compared to Boston, Massachusetts. We had the same passion in a way and fell in love with the same music, the same records. And he answers that question like, well, what if I never left that teenage bedroom? What if I held on to that emotion like my whole life? What would that have been like? And I think we love it when people don't do things for money Mm -hmm. because we've all had to do things for money and it sucks. (laughs) And you don't put your heart into something and you know you're not. And you're like, fuck, wasting the days, paying the mortgage. He is just doing this for love. And Mm -hmm. no matter what, whatever it is that someone's doing, if they're doing it for love, I think you can't help but kind of follow along. And when somebody's doing something out of love for something that you also love, well, then naturally it's a connection. I love digging into this music with him, following his journey He rose up, he got knocked down, he got back up again. I think it's a story of resilience and ultimately a story of of this music that is going to be with us forever. I love that. And speaking of love, it's that time, Peter. Oh. We would like you to write a love letter to Led Zeppelin Live. Oh, my God. Okay. And uh, when you say write, you mean write with my mouth. Say, write verbally with your (laughs) mouth, yes. Dear... Led Zeppelin Live. Thank you for the magic. Thank you for the mystery. Thank you for giving my teenage years a little bit of spark and danger and mystery. Thank you for giving me something to aspire to as an artist, to be a little bit unpredictable. Yes, to be a little bit dangerous, to not conform, to make music or art that's for yourself and hopefully other people dig it. But ultimately, you're performing and doing what you want to do just because you love it. And uh, thank you for the years of enjoyment of not only listening to the music, but kind of tracking it down and the joy of the hunt of finding and discovering great recordings and bootlegs of, of all that, that you've done. And thank you for showing me that live experience is something that we should never underestimate, never turn our back on, never rely on sitting at home watching something on the tube, that there's something magical about being out in space with other people who are also into the same shit as you and uh, sharing in that you know, collectively. I think also Led Zeppelin Live was going for it, all about going for it. 
sometimes maybe overstepping, sometimes going off a cliff, sometimes just teetering on the edge, but always going for it. And I think that as an artist, that's what it's all about. If you're not fucking going for it, then uh, what's the point? Then go yeah. sell insurance. Then don't be an artist. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Love Peter. Love Peter. Love Peter. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Wow, Claire. I'm blown away. I thought I was a Zeppelin fan. Clearly, I'm a noob, as the kids said like 20 years ago. <laughs> well, I just like that I'm like, I want to hear the Copenhagen bootleg. And he's like, uh-uh, you're not ready. You're not uh-uh. ready, sister. But, you know, I could really relate because when I, as you know, and everybody who listens to this podcast knows, when I get like into something, I get like super, mm-hmm. super into it. So besides Peter being a fan himself of the music, to then approach it as a filmmaker with his documentary. Yeah, eight years for Mr. Jimmy. Eight years. It's That's a long time to make a movie. Uh, I would say. <laughs> but you know, you can't rush time and it is a documentary. So I don't know. It was great. It definitely, every time we do a musical, you know, an episode that centers around music is I do think about that album experience and like me being a young girl going to NYU. I was still 17 when I started college and like laying on the floor and listening to these like classic albums that people were introducing me to. You know, I'm from Ohio, grew up with certain music. Now I'm in New York City. There's CBGBs. There's like the Village Voice filled with musicians and, you know, events every day, every hour almost, you know, living like on St. Mark's Place. It was such a special time. And I do feel bad. I don't think my kids are going to have that same experience of growth and reflection. Like listening about live records, AKA bootlegs, like those exist, but they're just like online. You know, you don't have to go meet with the guy who's in a head shop selling bongs and offering you like, do you want a glass bong or do you want like a, you know, 1979 Led Zeppelin? That kind of treasure hunting also doesn't exist. And it's something that I don't know. I think we're all going to miss out on as we just sit at home and, and listen to stuff on our devices. I would be really remiss at this moment if I didn't mention the most infamous pairing of head shop and other, which would be, did you ever have a waterbeds and stuff? No. I mean, I mean, I know what it is. Well, it's, it's waterbeds and stuff. I imagine. They sold waterbeds and bongs. That oh was the stuff. As the, it was like drug paraphernalia. And they had this song that was like, stuff, 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 <laughs> stuff, 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 and waterbeds and stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh so, yeah, God. I just had to give a shout out to all my central high-ins who uh, shopped at waterbeds and stuff. I love that. And I love it almost as much as I loved hearing all the stories about Zeppelin and, and specifically when we get into it, we got into it in the the mini-sode, but Led Zeppelin almost didn't give the rights to the music. So you're going to have to check out the mini-sode for that. But I'm just blown away that this movie came to fruition. And it came from the perfect guy because Peter clearly loves Led Zeppelin with all of his heart. And that came across in this episode in a big way. Wouldn't you agree, Claire? Oh, yeah, totally. I'm still thinking about waterbeds and stuff, though. You didn't let me finish my jingle. So, like, you know, it's still going on in my mind. Whatever, though, Jake, if you want to just talk about Led Zeppelin and bootleg recordings. Um, Yeah, this is a great episode. We have some other music episodes 
So definitely check out our own mm-hmm. repertoire on wearefanatics.com, at wearefanatics on Twitter. And you know what we always say? That's right. Sharing is caring. It so is. spread the word. We will see you guys on Monday for a mini-sode and next Thursday for a new episode of Fanatics. Boom. Thank you for listening to Fanatics, a Roddenberry podcast. For more episodes and info, head over to wearefanatics.com or tweet your Fanatics thoughts and stories at wearefanatics. Yes, that's we are F-A-N-A-D-D-I-C-T-S. Our show is hosted by Claire Kramer and me, David Magadoff. Produced by me, Claire Kramer, and Kelsey Goldberg. Executive producers Trevor Roth and Rod Roddenberry. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham. You can thank Stephen Mudd for our theme song. Catch us next Thursday for another Fanatics episode. Fanatics.